0: Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 49. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. So I'm recording this on January 10th, 2021. <laughs> All those people excited about 2020 coming to an end, hold my beer says 2021. We have lived through a historic week in the U.S. and (laughs) I thought this episode might be wrapped up a little bit sooner, but uh, life got in the way. This is not a political podcast. This is a podcast about pilgrimage. For that reason, there have been times over the last four or five years when I have not been especially interested in working on the podcast. I've brought up before some of my internal hesitations about how I used pilgrimage in my life, that it offered a nice lengthy distraction from the disruptions of the world. And I know many of us have reveled in being disconnected from the news for five weeks at a time or longer over the course of our recent history and not just the last four years. I think it's been tremendously healthy at many different points to disengage from the world and what's happening. But my ambivalence came in from the fact that it did feel at times self-indulgent to disconnect an act of privilege to separate myself from things that were unpleasant because I had the capacity to do so. And Over the last four years, I have worked very hard as an American from the Pacific Northwest, which is one of the most liberal parts of the country and one of the least religious parts of the country, to educate myself about what life is like in the rest of America and what Americans from all different stripes are going through. So I've worked on taking my students to rural parts of Oregon at different points and building connections with other parts of the state. I have read thousands and thousands of pages at this point, memoirs, political pieces, think pieces, all kinds of different stuff about the state of the country right now. I've taught a class, Divided States of America, focused on trying to help my students and myself understand how we got to where we are as a country. And then, as a lot of you know, I aspired over the last year to walk across the U.S. I made it about 2,500 miles before the pandemic forced me to stop. But what the purpose of that really was, was to see the country and see Americans of all different backgrounds. And what I liked about it in particular was that It was almost entirely, of course, in the interior of America, right? Like, I started on the coast. Ideally, I would have ended on the coast. But in between, I was walking through, you know, West Virginia and Ohio and Iowa and Nebraska and and all these so-called flyover states, Kansas, that so many particularly liberal Americans have no firsthand experience with. I hoped that I would leave that feeling more optimistic, and I ended up feeling less optimistic. I actually felt kind of guilty after an exchange I had with a student who was looking forward to connecting with other parts of the country, and she asked me about my experience afterward, and I said I'm, I'm, I'm more pessimistic now, not because of the people I met, not because of the personal experience that I had. I met a lot of memorable people, Kind, generous people. A lot of people went out of their way to help me out, and people where I'm sure that we have significant differences in how we see the world. But I felt more pessimistic because what that trip reinforced for me was how our understandings of the world, our conceptions of base level truth, have been so wildly distorted by the media that we consume, that I struggled to see a road forward. It wasn't about maliciousness. It wasn't about people being bad. It was about the fact that we are geographically distant from one another in many cases, and without the opportunities for personal interaction to get proximate, as Brian Stevenson always likes to talk about, the importance of actually coming in contact, getting to know people on a human-to-human human level. Without that, it seems almost impossible to overcome the misinformation that is being replicated and amplified across the political divide. So I left that feeling more concerned. And of course, this last week has just reinforced the harm that can come from the amplification of that misinformation. I have always kind of had these two halves of myself in terms of my intellectual, my academic interests, the things that I'm curious about. As a lot of you know, I lead students on pilgrimage, and pilgrimage has been a big part of my life in a lot of different ways now for the past couple of decades. At the same time, the other big point of emphasis for me academically Has been this field known as transitional justice, which looks at how countries can rebuild after conflict, after civil war, genocide, oppressive governance, massacre, all the really, really heinous stuff. And as part of that, I've taken students to a lot of different places and I've traveled independently to a lot of different places to. South Africa, to Rwanda, to Poland, to look at the legacy of the Holocaust, to Chile and Argentina, throughout Central America, taking students to Canada to look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there. So I've looked into this process of reconciliation, of documenting the truth, of the pursuit of justice from a lot of different angles in a lot of different places. And so I've often felt over these last handful of years, like (laughs) there are these distinct aspects of myself that are fundamentally divided my interest in pilgrimage as something that i do for me that is personally enriching the relationship i have with my country with america and my fears about where we're headed and then also this broader international interest in truth and reconciliation so what's interesting to me <laughs> is how the, the barriers between those are starting to break down in interesting ways. And this shows up in particular in a lot of the emerging academic work that's being done in the realm of pilgrimage studies. And one of the things that I've been working on over the last year is familiarizing myself with a lot of the writing that's being done about pilgrimage in academic circles. You know, I think a lot of us who are interested in pilgrimage, we read the memoirs, and we read some of the historical and cultural stuff, but there's a whole world of work that's being done in this growing field of pilgrimage studies that's really interesting, and the next couple of episodes are linked in going into, in particular, the work of pilgrimage as a vehicle for peace development and reconciliation. So in this episode, I'm just going to focus on one interview. This episode will be a little shorter. The next episode will be a little longer. This episode features an interview with Dr. Ian McIntosh, who has done a lot of work on the intersection of pilgrimage and peace building. And it's kind of a globe-trotting episode. We start off with Ian in Australia, and we travel forward through gaza and sri lanka and china and all over the place and what ian offers is a helpful overview to some of the possibilities the potential that pilgrimage offers from a peace-building perspective so this is the macro episode what are some of the possibilities and then next episode we'll go into a couple of more focused case studies So that's the goal for this episode, zooming out from the more common focus on, you know, the Camino and walking pilgrimages, but thinking more about the potential pilgrimage has, not just to make our own lives better, but to make the world better. It's big aspirational stuff, but there's potential. (laughs) Dr. Ian McIntosh is the author of Pilgrimage, Walking to Peace, Walking for Change, and the founder of the Sacred Journeys Project that brings pilgrimage and religious tourism scholars together from across the world for an annual conference. He has co edited three volumes on pilgrimage and peace building, including The Many Voices of Pilgrimage and Reconciliation, Pilgrimage in Practice, and Peace Journeys. Dr. McIntosh is the Director of International Partnerships at Indiana University's Indianapolis campus and teaches in the schools of philanthropy and liberal arts as well. And that only scratches the surface. Thanks for talking with me, Dr. McIntosh. Thanks so much, Dave. As I said before, I'm thrilled to have you here and and very excited about how you are looking into the overlap, the relationship between pilgrimage and and reconciliation. And you've led a, a fascinating life traveling around the world, pursuing work that applied your anthropological expertise to a variety of social justice initiatives. And so to start us off, I'm curious how pilgrimage emerged as a major topic of interest for you within all of that.
1: I love to travel, see new places, and meet new peoples. And I've been very fortunate in this regard. You know, and as an anthropologist, you know, by training, you know, social anthropology is about identifying the fundamental truths of the human condition. And that is my passion and what keeps me on the road, so to speak. But it was my work in Aboriginal Australia that really inspired me in this field. For many years, I was based in a remote part of Australia's outback, and I was able to witness both the ongoing struggles of the first Australians for truth, justice, and reconciliation. As you know, the indigenous peoples have suffered greatly in the wake of colonization, but also the traditional religious beliefs, practices, and travels known to the world as the dreaming, the song lines, the lines in which people are Traveling during these rituals. So, in my later work, I would join these two topics, peace and pilgrimage. So, initially, my academic and practical work was focused on justice and reconciliation in Australia mm-hmm. with Indigenous peoples. And then over the years, I started to look further afield to places like South Africa and Rwanda and Bosnia and so on. But over time, I became downhearted with the lack of any real progress. Peace requires a major commitment to change you give up something for the greater good. But in most cases, groups aren't prepared to do that. Grievances run very deep and often oceans of hatred remain. Without a lot of coercion, the chances of long lasting success in any peace process is limited. And then I discovered the idea of pilgrimage and peace building in places like Lebanon, and India, and Ethiopia. And this really piqued my curiosity. If people from different walks of life and different sides of the political and religious divide are already out there on the trail together, could this be a foundation for peace work? So that's what I've been doing over the past 10 years.
0: What kinds of places have you been exploring that since then?
1: One of my uh, great interests has been in India and Sri Lanka, and we we can talk more about uh, both of those places. And I've had students in uh, Ethiopia who have been working on uh, Muslim Christian cooperation in those places, and uh, colleagues also in, in Lebanon, and we, we work very closely together.
0: This is a totally new field for me to be discussing on the podcast. And, you know, the podcast is called the Camino Podcast. I'm often speaking with pilgrims who have that very particular frame of reference for thinking about and conceptualizing pilgrimage, you know, operating within the more Catholic traditions, shaping walking pilgrimages to Santiago and Rome. You're coming at pilgrimage, obviously, from a very different direction. So just to make sure we're we're speaking the same language, what do you have in mind when you talk or think about the practice of pilgrimage?
1: Yes, well, I think we're talking the same language. As I say in my book, Pilgrimage, Walking to Peace, Walking for Change, pilgrimage is synonymous with freedom, the freedom to be, to breathe, to become, to grow, to broaden one's horizons in the company of fellow seekers and to affirm or confirm sacred truths. As my colleague George Greenier says, these are journeys of transformation, and I think that is a really good definition. It distinguishes such travel from tourism, where there is no expectation of transformation. I've been to many pilgrimage sites as a tourist, an outside observer, but I've also been to many tourist sites as a pilgrim, and I'll give you one example of that. The experience for me at Mount Tai or Tai Shan in China was particularly noteworthy. So, this is the holiest mountain in China, but to, today it is regarded simply as a leading place of cultural heritage. On the top, you'll see the old temples, and even though it is frowned upon, you'll see the followers of Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucius all together praying and performing rituals while they're completely engulfed in a sea of day-trippers who are there to appreciate the great view from the top. It really is a fantastic view, and it's, it's famous because Confucius, 2,500 years ago, left his mark there in a classic piece of graffiti. And, you know, uh, Confucius was here. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, in his writings about that pilgrimage that Confucius made, he talked about how small everything looked in the world below and how insignificant are our problems course, foreshadowing famous statements of people like Carl Sagan in the 20th century about astronauts on the moon or on their spaceship looking towards our little blue planet floating in endless dark space. For Confucius, climbing Mount Tai was a holy
0: pilgrimage. And it was for me too. Can you describe the flip side of that? You mentioned being at a pilgrimage site as a tourist. What's an example of that? And why did it not land for you in the same way?
1: When I was in Rome, for example, visiting some of those amazing churches, John the Lateran and so on, and seeing the, the, the steps, I think they call it the Pontius Pilate steps. Oh, of course, I was in a massive group and we're all being herded through the sacred space and you'd take a quick snap and on you go. But of course, I've never forgotten that, but uh, you know, I, I wasn't there as a pilgrim. Although in my memory, there were people climbing those steps on their knees. Now that's going back 30 years. I don't know if it's still still possible to do that. And even in Jerusalem, where, you know, you're on the bus trip around the holy sites, and, and here's the Via Dolorosa. Well, we know the history of that. It's, it's a constructed site. And was it the actual path? No, but it's symbolic of, you know. And so, yes, yeah, so I, I was pretty much a tourist seeing these incredibly holy sites. And, of course, I, you know, I remember going to the Dome of the Rock. I really wanted to, to go inside my tour guide was so against the idea that Mohammed had ever even been in Jerusalem. And he was very vocal about this and it shamed me so much that we had to get out of there because he was abusing pretty well everybody around. So, yeah, I was a tourist there.
0: It reminds me of an experience I had at Auschwitz with a group of students where we, we hired a guide and we were just being led through at a frantic pace from one room to the next room to the next room, And the ways that we experience a site have such a profound impact on that potential to transform, that potential for us to more meaningfully connect with them.
1: Yes. Yes. I think the first site that I could see myself uh, starting to understand the Pilgrim Experience was when I first saw Mount Ararat. It's in Turkey, but I mean, you view it from the Armenian capital of Yerevan, and of a morning you'll see all of the people out paying attention or considering Mount Ararat of the morning, praying to Mount Ararat, whatever it is that they do. And, you know, and I, I would witness this. And so that wasn't a rushed experience. I was in Armenia for a year and I saw the way that people honored that place.
0: It's the beauty of walking, that any arrival you have so much time to anticipate and ponder and think through that it deepens your relationship with it before you even make contact. You've already touched on interfaith, opportunities on pilgrimage. And it's something that you write about a fair amount in your book. You actually ask the question at one point, how might the act of pilgrimage help to legitimize the beliefs and practices of others so that we no longer regard them with hatred or suspicion, which is certainly a noble goal. It feels like it becomes more noble by the year. So why is it in your view that, that pilgrimage provides a particularly rich setting for this kind of interfaith dialogue and bridge building?
1: Well, I'll say something about how I actually came upon this topic here. So the the two main chapters of my book that examine pilgrimage and peace building are in two very troubled parts of the world, Gaza and Sri Lanka. The former Gaza was really my first exploration of this topic. But I was inspired by the Sri Lankan pilgrimage for this particular intervention in Palestine. So for three years, beginning in 2013, I held semester-long visioning classes for students at Gaza University. Students had to identify the pathways to prosperity and peace, and they chose pilgrimage and religious tourism as the driver of both a cultural and an economic renaissance. So this was how I got started, really. The students said, all right, of all the possible avenues for moving forward out of this current catastrophe, pilgrimage and religious tourism is the way. And at the time, we sort of thought, well, look, Gaza is a disaster area. No one wants to go there. It's uh, it's a terrible place. But when we heard the students' uh, reports, we were all sold on the idea. And the the basis of their their thinking was that there should be more than 3 million Muslim pilgrims traveling from Gaza to Jerusalem, or Al-Quds as they call it, on Umrah each year. But there is currently a ban imposed by Muslim clerics who are protesting the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the blockade of Gaza. But in the Gaza vision, all the problems that currently beset the region have been resolved to the satisfaction of all parties. And the students were free to think about the future without the burden of current realities. And it was a beautiful vision that they created, which included the building of new hotels, parks, cultural centers, a port, and the restoration of over 250 touristic sites in Gaza many of them of great historical and religious significance, you know, going back to Alexander the Great and Anthony and Cleopatra. Then, of course, came Operation Protective Edge, which laid waste to many of these sites and caused the deaths of thousands of Palestinians and an even higher number who were permanently disabled. But the vision of my Palestinian students remains strong. I'm still friends on Facebook with many of them, and the lesson was, was
0: learned. Pilgrimage can be an avenue for peace building under the right circumstances. Is the thinking there particularly pilgrimage as an economic vehicle to facilitate reconciliation? It was both. In fact, much more than that.
1: Economic was one. Yes. You know, cause we, we asked them, my co-professor, we said, if you have 3 million visitors to Gaza, where are they going to stay? You know, there's, there's nowhere all the hotels are broke. You know, what are they going to eat? You know, <laughs> show me the restaurants. Are there cultural centers? Are there places, the museums? And so, they started to see this plan evolve, there it be training in so many different areas needed to support such an influx of people. You know, everything from tour guides to chefs to hotel managers. But they all agreed, though, that that was one side. Yes, Gaza could become prosperous with this. But of course, they needed healing. So healing had to be, this is collective healing. Just about everybody in that class was suffering in some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder and whatever else. And so healing had to be a part of this vision. You know, you had to be in the position to do the work of peace building, to do the work of uh, of making the nation prosperous. And, you know, many people admitted that they were broken. And until they were personally healed, then they could do this. So it was all part of this bigger plan of uh, building peace through becoming prosperous and a healed nation. Mm -hmm. My second case and it was the one that I, I shared with the Gaza students, and it may have helped get them thinking because we wanted them to be thinking about uh, uh, Gaza used to be well known as a, an interfaith enclave. Everyone was there, the Christian Jews, the Muslims were all there living peaceably together as early as the early 1900s. So on that basis, I introduced them to the Sri Lankan case study. And it's one of the best interfaith studies that, that I know of. So I shared the story of Sri Lanka, a story from Sri Lanka with the Gaza students. And the focus was what is probably the greatest interfaith pilgrimage site on earth, up until the 1950s, that is. Like Jerusalem, Sri Pada, or Adam's Peak in Sri Lanka, is sacred to many different religious groups. In Jerusalem, of course, as you know, it's Christian, Jews, and Muslims. Whereas for Sri Pada, which means the holy footprint, it is Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims. What's so startling about this pilgrimage site? is that pilgrims of all these different faiths climb the mountain together in their own style and at their own pace, often performing the very same rituals. They worship at a mark in the rock, which sort of looks like a footprint. You know, you have to use your imagination a bit. But they have their own interpretations about where this footprint comes from. And of course, for the the Hindus of Sri Lanka and southern India, this is the mark of Shiva, who danced there. Of course, all the rivers, like in you know, the Himalayas, all the rivers of Sri Lanka come from this holy mountain. The Buddhists, however, say it's from the enlightened one, the Buddha, on his visit to Sri Lanka. Of course, people tell you that he was never in Sri Lanka, but that's beside uh, the point. The Muslims say that it is the mark of Adam after he was expelled from paradise. And of course, there's many other beliefs associated with it, including the mountain itself, which is considered a living entity a god in itself. And uh, by some extraordinary accounts, the mountain itself will be a future reincarnation of the Buddha. I think they said the seventh will be this mountain. And you know, uh, when you're there and you're amongst 300,000 pilgrims, you believe that. It's a very (laughs) powerful place. But yes, there's indigenous peoples of Sri Lanka have beliefs associated with that. It's a place where they would worship the sun. There's also stories linking the mountain with uh, the Queen of Sheba and uh, Alexander the Great and on and on. And and of course, when the Portuguese conquered Sri Lanka, they felt it was imperative to also capture the holy mountain. And they claimed that the footprint on the top was that of the apostles of the world, St. Thomas, who by all accounts was also never in Sri Lanka. But there it was in the 1500s. That was the predominant belief. Nevertheless, with all of those uh, sort of, uh, you'd think, well, these are all competing beliefs, but they're not. In the pilgrimage season, which is sort of December till about March, members of all these faiths, and for the most most part, you can't tell who's who, will climb up the mountain together overnight in silence, side by side. There's no attempt to convert one another or prevent the others from doing their own thing. The mountain has been center stage like this for so many different initiatives designed to bring peace in Sri Lanka. In the off-season, it's a tourist site. Many people will do day trips to there. But in the pilgrimage season, we're talking millions upon millions of people will come. Yeah, it's it's some sort of a special place.
0: And no, no tension, no troubles, everyone together.
1: Well, you know, when I was there, there were 300,000 people that night. I picked a bad night. And I knew it as I was driving in. There were buses parked on either side of the road going back 29 kilometers. Each of the buses were bedecked in decorations indicating it was a Pilgrim bus. And I thought, this is something else. 29 kilometers buses, jam-packed like this. We headed out early uh, in the night, and it was very slow going. But, of course, one of the rules is you cannot complain. You never, you will never hear anyone complain, even though we we're going very slowly. We're well, I mean, fast at the beginning, and as we got closer to the top where it narrows, Oh, it was very slow, very slow. At one point, we all sat down. It might have been for half an hour. We're just sitting down on the edge of the mountain, you know, and we're packed, jam-packed on either side, or really close to one another, and we're just sort of waiting, you know, and this is the only path up and down. So there's only <laughs> a tiny little way down. We sort of think, this isn't good, you know. And then after about half an hour, sort of an electric shock went through the crowd, and everyone jumped up, and I thought, oh, we're moving. And we moved one step, and then we sat down again. <laughs> No, oh, it's a phenomenal place. A lot of people go for the sunrise because you you can see why the indigenous peoples of Sri Lanka prayed at the top. The shadow of the peak on the clouds below forms a perfect triangle over the clouds. It's it's a remarkable sight. Absolutely, it's it's mind-boggling. It's like it's the shape like a pyramid. This perfect
0: equilateral triangle on the mountain. You shake your head in amazement. So one thing that I'm struggling to understand here is. The mere act of creating an interfaith experience does not automatically lend itself (laughs) to um, congenial coexistence. And I've visited the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There's an interfaith setting that is very tense. So what goes into making this work? This is a
1: question that continues to exercise me. uh... In a place like Jerusalem, you know, you, you know, I have got examples through my reconciliation work of Muslims and Jews doing creative and collaborative efforts all around the world, climbing Mount Everest together, you know, Palestinians and Jews climbing Mount Everest together, going to the South Pole, and these fantastic acts of joint activity. But when it comes to the Holy Land, it's too hard. It's, it seems to be too hard altogether. I mean, there's been some wonderful initiatives trying to get people together, and one of the, the best known is the Abraham Path that uh, William Murray started 10, 15 years ago. You know, I was quite skeptical at the time, and perhaps I still am, but you're following the path of, of Abraham through the West Bank and for Muslim, Jews, and Christians to come together, but they don't. They don't. But what it has done is been a, a real economic driver for those local Palestinian communities, an economic renaissance for those people. And you can learn something of the history of the area and so on. When it started, William Murray was looking at a peace project, but these days they don't talk like that because it hasn't functioned in that manner. Still, I'm hopeful that it can, and I've written about it in that light, but when I talk to the, the leaders of that path today, they they don't, they don't talk about it as the means by which there can be some greater coming together. But yes, in Sri Lanka it works because it's a point of pride, and it's the same in Ethiopia. The people are so proud of this cooperation In Ethiopia, Muslims will help rebuild or refurbish the Christian churches and vice versa. They even participate in each other's pilgrimages. You'll see a little bit of that in Bosnia as well. Mostly Muslims in Christian sites or Christians protecting old Muslim uh, places. But in Sri Lanka, Ethiopia, yes, Lebanon, of course in Lebanon. It's something that people can point to and say, well, look, this is special in our world, in the world history. This has never been a feature of world history. I can if we find one place I'd like people to tell me if there, there were but I haven't found them
0: we're pinging around the globe here but we'll shift over now to western china and the middle east so I've been I've been trying to learn a lot about the Hajj recently because it was a an aspect of pilgrimage that I really had never looked into in any depth or detail and so I was interested to see you reference it and you introduced this concept to me called the pilgrim paradox so let's start with that. What is the Pilgrim Paradox, and, and how is it related to the Hajj?
1: So this is a very important development in pilgrimage studies in the last few years. So the idea of the Pilgrim Paradox is derived from the work of some colleagues in Pakistan and Circassia in southern Russia, where there is a real concern by authorities that pilgrims traveling to Mecca on the Hajj will become radicalized by the experience, or at least develop an increased intolerance of other faiths. Authorities fear the pilgrims might foment extremist violence, or in places like Circassia, call for a breakaway republic. But what the research shows, however, is the very opposite. People going on the Hajj, going to Mecca, there is certainly an increased adherence by the pilgrims to global Islamic practices, such as prayer and fasting, and decreasing participation in localized practices. But there's also increased tolerance of non Muslims. Which was totally unexpected. That's
0: why they call it the pilgrim paradox. It harkens back in some ways to Malcolm X writing about his experience on the Hajj. Exactly.
1: And the outcome was totally unexpected, especially for him. He went to Mecca with one sort of a a mindset and came back completely transformed. And this is the case with many Hajj participants, and I've interviewed quite a quite a number, and often when you sort of paraphrase what they're saying, you know, they come back feeling You know, their Hajj has to be accepted, of course, by God. But if the Hajj is accepted, they come back more at peace with themselves, with fellow Muslims of all branches, not just the one branch that they might be a member of, with non-Muslims and with the environment. So there's this real sense of peace with the world at large. It's a wonderful thing. You know, that's why I classify the Hajj as a peace pilgrimage.
0: You mentioned the intractability of Israel-Palestine, a similarly intractable situation right now, seems to be in Western China with the Chinese Communist Party's treatment of the Uyghur population. And so I was intrigued to see you suggesting that what the pilgrimage paradox suggests is that pilgrimage may offer part of a way forward for that situation. So what do you have in mind there?
1: Now, I was looking at the situation for the Uyghur Muslims in Western China, in the light of these studies in Pakistan and Tsukhasa. The Uyghur are prevented from engaging in any pilgrimage practices, their own local practices or international ones, like to Mecca. You know, up to 10% of the 10 million Uyghur in Western China are currently imprisoned in re-education camps by the Chinese, where they must renounce their identity and heritage and sing songs in praise of the communist regime. It's an abomination. Only 11,500 Chinese Muslims were permitted to go on the Hajj in 2018. And of those, 30% had to wear a GPS tracking device around their necks. Imagine that, can you still be a pilgrim when you're under constant surveillance like that? I find that so astonishing. China's ambition in places like Xinjiang, where the Uyghur live, and Tibet, is for harmonious coexistence of a mutually beneficial sort. That's their official position. But their punitive actions towards the Uyghur are having the very opposite effect. When nothing else is working, why not look seriously at the research of pilgrimage uh, scholars? Send the pilgrims to Mecca as a way of breaking down stereotypes and reducing prejudice. And I actually wrote a a short paper like that and shared that with
0: some of my uh, Chinese colleagues. I may never be allowed in China again. It's a brutal situation and it's a caveat worth having in mind that you're not suggesting that pilgrimage is singularly going to resolve this situation, but it might offer support.
1: Absolutely. If it follows the same pattern as the other places, it will open the door to perhaps a more congenial relationships. But at the moment, there's no possibility of that. You know, the Uyghur are the other who must be brought into the communist fold. And to do that, they must deny their separatist heritage.
0: We travel now further east to Japan. There's a quote that stood out to me in, in your book. And shifting from reconciliation to peace, you write, if you really want to experience peace firsthand, go on a pilgrimage to Hiroshima. And people listening have been drawn to the idea of pilgrimage to the Kumano Kodo, to the island of Shikoku. But Hiroshima, what makes that such a worthwhile destination for someone looking for a pilgrimage?
1: Kumano Koto, absolutely, and Shikoku, of course, but go to Hiroshima first. Hiroshima, you know, it's surrounded by the mountains and the sea, is such a beautiful place, and, you know, the offshore islands, including Miyajima, have been major Buddhist pilgrimage sites for over a thousand years. I think my visit to Hiroshima was more impactful than perhaps any other. How can you not be moved by the stories of that tragic day and of survival? as you walk around, uh, you know, these now prosperous streets, can't imagine uh, what what happened there in 1945. But then you start to see the landmarks, including shadows cast upon balustrades, you know, the only tangible remains of a living person who was vaporized in a split second at the hyposecond, the bomb detonating some thousand plus feet above him or her. Then read the, annual Hiroshima Statement by the mayor of the city. So Hiroshima leads this international group of mayors for peace in the world. And each year, the Hiroshima mayor reads a statement. And it's a plea for the end of the use of nuclear weapons and a plea for the end of war. These are always very passionate statements. As you walk around Hiroshima, a lot of the major landmarks in the downtown area are covered in paper cranes. You know, little birds, folded paper cranes. And that's a tremendous story, of course, how the the paper crane became a symbol of Hiroshima. And, you know, they're very sad stories, of course. But they cover the ruined sites and and the monuments. These are gestures by children from across the world who also hope for peace. In schools here in the U.S. and, and, you know, everywhere, the children will make these cranes and they'll send them to Hiroshima. And they'll be placed on these sites as a gesture. You know, there's nowhere, nowhere that I know like Hiroshima. I mean, you, you can go to the Peace Museum and reflect there and reflect on the future of humankind, for example. And whether we have a future, you can speak to the people that you meet there. You know, share something of yourself and your dreams for the future. You listen to their stories. You know, Hiroshima survivors, the hibokusha, as they're called, that means the burned ones, are very keen to share their stories. And they tend to do so without any sort of bitterness, only with a deep hope for an end to war, and especially an end to nuclear weapons. Oh, I I love Hiroshima. I I don't think I slept. I think I'm sure I had the worst nightmares of my life at that place, but it didn't prevent it being just a stunning experience.
0: We've covered all of these different places where you have perspective on pilgrimage, and pilgrimage in a variety of different forms that are distinct from what most people listening have experience with. But you also do have experience with the Camino de Santiago. So I'm curious how that fits in to your broader perspective on pilgrimage. Given all of this experience, all of these perspectives, what was the Camino experience like for you?
1: My book, Pilgrimage, I talk about myself being a Camino doubter. But I've loved my two visits to Santiago de Compostela. The first time I was giving a talk at the Pilgrim Museum there, which is right by the cathedral, and my wife and I, and my sister and her husband, we all walked together from Portugal, just shy of the Spanish border. The second time I was giving a talk at the annual meeting of the Institute for Religious Tourism and Pilgrimage at the University of Santiago de Compostela, and I took the opportunity to walk to Finisterre by myself. I absolutely loved it, despite getting lost on the very first turn out of the city. I still can't work out how that happened. I mean, it was raining quite heavily, and I had my backpack on, and it was early in the morning, a little bit dark, and I walked for several miles in completely the wrong direction. You know, you come down the hill, (laughs) you turn left. How did I miss it? I missed it. But when I finally got back on the track, I latched onto the first lone walker, you know, a Californian man, and and we stayed together for the rest of the day, sharing life stories and lessons, and it was magical. Uh, We even picked up a Japanese walker on the way, and her story was very moving. People go on the Camino for all sorts of reasons, often very deep ones. And it's a great place to share and learn something about yourself. You know? So I, I'm very thankful for my time on the Camino, and I'm
0: keen to go back. Is it analogous? Is this the same phenomenon that you're seeing in these other settings? Or is, are these very distinct varieties of pilgrimage?
1: Well, oh, the Camino is very different. Mm-hmm. Very different from uh, pretty well any other pilgrimage that I'm aware of. there's major walking pilgrimages in many parts of the world. in India, there's great walking pilgrimages. they're not like this. The Camino is throwing people together, or it can, if you allow it to, throwing people together who might not otherwise ever find uh, you know the chance to talk. and some of the, the pilgrimage scholars talk about you know anti-structure. I mean there's no hierarchy, we're all we're all equals on this trail. and I met some fantastic people. I remember one uh, retired german woman just as we were coming into it's called Longestera. era and never will know it the, the long beach just before finisterra and there's a little cafe and we had to stop in there because it was completely pouring with rain i'd seen her all day you know we'd walked roughly the same sort of speed but we we hadn't interacted at all you know or a couple of times i helped her put a raincoat on but no words were shared or anything like this or if we sat on another beach or back further well we might uh, sit nearby or we just sort of acknowledge ourselves but at this cafe before the long arching beach uh, we sat together and we, we had a sort of a snack and of course you ask all the questions it's, uh, it's the same questions to everybody you know what are you doing here and what's it all about and she had uh, been walking for a good few months and, uh, and she'd come up through Santiago and but it was only at this point that it was all coming clear you know so here's Finisterre, at the end and she said, well, look, I'm retired. I've had a, a good life. I've never been in want of anything. A shelter, roof over my head, food on the table, clean water to drink. I've been very blessed in that regard. And she said, and, uh, you know, over this last few months, I've carried all of my possessions on my back, everything. Everything I need is here. Why do I need all of those other things? The mortgages and the, the worry of the car and the worry of this and the worry of that, all of these things. She said. Everything that I have back in Dusseldorf is just a burden. When I'm going back, I've now committed myself to unburdening and helping those who don't have those things that I've taken for granted in my life. Oh, it was a wonderful conversation. You know, I I was really blown away. It was still raining. We'd been there about an hour. And I said, well, I'm going to push on. She said, oh, I'll come a bit later. I said, well, we should meet up in Finisterre and continue the talk. But I never saw her again. But that's that's common for the Camino. You meet these people, they unburden their soul. Yeah, so there were, even though my trips were, you know, the first one was only about 10 days and this one was four, even in those shorter times, these were very memorable and life-changing experiences for me. So the Camino is different. It's different. These other experiences that I've had in, particularly in places like India and Sri Lanka, oh yeah, they're phenomenal, but it's a different thing.
0: Still a pilgrimage, though. <laughs> There's a lot bound up under that heading. It's a big umbrella. So we're now heading back from Spain to where you are currently. So a lot of us have suddenly been more interested in pilgrimage opportunities in North America over these last six to eight months. Those of us who find ourselves grounded are intrigued by the possibilities. And you have been involved in a project in Indianapolis. You co-founded the Indianapolis Spiritual Trails. So what is it and what's your vision for it?
1: We created the Indianapolis Spiritual Trail as a project of the Center for Interfaith Cooperation. That was the driving force in this, you know, so this was, you know, we talked about interfaith, opportunities for interfaith engagement, and this NGO had been trying all sorts of ways of getting people together, you know, uh, open houses, you know, at various churches, mosques, and synagogues, and so on, and dinners with people of other faiths, and We have a a festival of faiths, which uh, never really worked for me. I I was the major critic of it because it's a big deal. I'll get thousands of people, but in a big open area in the downtown, you'll have a hundred separate tables. Here's the Mormons and here's the Jews and here's the, you know, this and that and the other thing. And I said, well, this is terrible. What, What If you don't fit into one of those boxes, well, you'd feel very uncomfortable here. They want to get you into their box. And I said, well, look, we have to find a different way here. The Sikhs were being very innovative. They were putting turbans on everybody that walked past. It was a terrific gesture by them. So I said, we, we, we need to define some more avenues. Oh, this is all good. This is good. But, you know, I find it a bit alienating. How do we promote some sort of collective activities where people don't feel the pressure? We've had many attempts at trying to bring people of different faiths together in a room, and they don't want to be there. The four walls start to press in on you. They feel they're being coerced or something like that. It just doesn't feel right. But in nature, it's something completely different. So when we started the trail, we believed that every city should have a place in nature to support journeys of meditation, awareness raising, and personal growth across the religious and non-religious spectrum. So we would choose themes for guided walks that no one could say, well, that's a Sikh thing. Oh, that's a Mormon thing, Catholic, and so on. We would choose themes that uh, could attract anyone and everyone. And, and we do get people together, you know. And even if it's only fleeting, this experience of sauntering in nature can be life changing. And is, as we like to argue, can also lead to positive changes in the world at large. Over the years, we've had walks in partnership with AmeriCorps volunteers, and that was a great one. We had a following the presidential election in 2016. We had a walk on uh, love and common decency in partnership with the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. We've had Tai Chi, yoga, and Zen walks. We've done forest bathing, silent walks, singing walks. We did singing walks in the river itself, in the White River itself. We've had walks focused on environmental act- activism, where well, you name it. And of course, one of the most active groups on the trail is the local chapter of American Pilgrims on the Camino. And I've often had them share... You know, their thoughts on the camaraderie, sense of identity and belonging, you know, of this special Spanish experience. And of course, I, I asked them, I said, can you replicate what you've experienced in the Camino back at home? And of course, there's trails opening up right across the US. You know, I, I think every major city has a branch of American Pilgrims on the Camino where they try to do that. They they try to replicate. They tend to walk a little bit fast when I take them. You know, if I have a big Camino group and then I've got other people who are wanting a more spiritual experience, it's sometimes a bit of a disconnect because the Camino people want to walk 15 miles and the spiritual people, if you get a mile out of them, you're doing well because they're reflecting and considering and and all the rest. But of course, the key thing about the spiritual trail is we call it a BYOB trail. Bring your own beliefs. We also call it a soul stroll, where you can share your own reflections and experiences of the sacred in the beauty and serenity of the outdoors. And of course, we, we picked this, this wonderful place in Indianapolis along the White River and the old canal towpath. And whoever's coming to Indianapolis, send me a note or have a look on my Indianapolis Spiritual Trail Facebook site for details of when the next walk is. And everyone's welcome, of course. Or you can walk with yourself.
0: So they should go check out the Indianapolis Spiritual Trail Facebook page. And while they're at it, they should also check out the Sacred Journeys Facebook page because you do a great job of pushing out really interesting links. You're definitely locked in on a lot of what's happening in in pilgrimage discourse, both popular mainstream and also academia. And that leads me to my, my last question. You have this perspective on... The emerging research in the realm of pilgrimage studies. And it really does feel like a field that is growing and accelerating and vibrant. So I'm wondering what you think have been some of the major breakthroughs or perspectives that have emerged over this past decade. And what's next? What are we going to be reading over these next five to 10 years that are going to fundamentally influence how we think of pilgrimage?
1: Very, very good question, Dave. Uh, Back in 2014, I started this annual sacred journeys global conference to provide a venue for pilgrimage scholars to meet in a a smaller setting than you'll find in the bigger conferences, you know, with all the many breakout sessions, you know, you come to the end of a three day meeting and you haven't met anybody. It's time to go. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I remember the last really big conference that I, I went to like this, where there were people talking about pilgrimage. It was only in the lobby of the hotel waiting for the taxi that I got to meet another pilgrimage scholar, and he was fascinating, you know, amazing guy. And I sort of thought, I don't want to have this sort of a conference. I want a conference where everyone's going to have a chance to really meet each other and seriously get to know their work. And that's what we've been doing since then. You know, we've had uh, gatherings in in multiple locations around the globe, and so we don't have breakout sessions. That makes it a bit tough. It's a a two-and-a-half-day event. We're in one room, so we only have about 30 people. So sometimes it's a bit competitive to get in but we're all there in the, in the one space and everyone's encouraged to be a part of the discussion. The coffee breaks as usual, become really exciting times for quizzing each other on the specifics of things. And then we'll have outings and dinners together and meals. It's a nice format. What's the really exciting about this format is that a community has grown out of this. It's now, you know, over hundred people and they're, they're each encouraging each other, pushing each other in particular a new and exciting Ways in my particular interest in pilgrimage and peace building, we've now got a core group who works in that area. You know, in Lebanon, people are working with refugees, people from Franciscan University in Brooklyn who are working on issues dear to their heart in terms of uh, dealing with poverty and so on. There's different sorts of areas that, that have emerged. The idea of pilgrimage and healing has come through as a, as a major area of interest. There's a, quite a, a group that's working on that pilgrimage and peace building, as I I said, there's pilgrimage and human rights. I mean, we've got scholars, particularly in places like Canada, who are doing serious work with Indigenous peoples there. As you mentioned, Dave, we've created this Facebook page uh, for Sacred Journeys. We're trying to get a website together, but we need a bit of help to do that. We now have a board of directors who help assist us in providing direction for our annual conference and publications. But we're pushing the boundaries in a whole range of new areas which haven't really got that much attention in the past. Healing, peace, rights, and dealing with you know some of those topics that don't usually come under this area. I mean, tourism and peace, those two words used to go hand in hand in the 1980s. Tourism was seen as a great driver of peace, but it hasn't uh, eventuated. We're, we're trying to get scholars thinking more and more about the potential of pilgrimage. For these efforts that have the potential to change the world.
0: It's exciting to me, both in the broad brushstrokes in terms of what it represents. And on a personal level, I have at times over the last handful of years, I don't know if guilt is the right word, but I have started to feel like my own individual pursuits of pilgrimage are a self-indulgence. And I do find sometimes that it's, it's an easy world to escape into, especially the sort of Camino brand of pilgrimage. But What pulls me back is because I see on an individual level what you described on your Camino experience, that it does bring people together, that it does have this value. So I'm excited to see research going into work that shows how we can expand this further and how this can be something of value, not just on an interpersonal level, but on a national level, on an international level to affect meaningful change.
1: I think you're spot on there, Dave. And one of the calls I made in that book called Peace Journeys was that we have to reconsider how we define pilgrimage as a purely individual pursuit. Nowhere else in the world is it that. One of the most wonderful things I've seen was from Indonesia when uh, young men and women were going off to the Hajj. And this was a, a village in a remoter part of the Indonesian archipelago, and the whole village was out there, hundreds and hundreds of people to send them off on their journey. You know, of course it's for them, for their lives and their futures, but it's their lives and futures as a member of this collective. Don't forget where you came from. Bring those lessons back to us. So the emphasis on just on uh, you know, one's own interests, it doesn't resonate anywhere else. You know? <laughs> this predominantly Western definition of pilgrimage as an individual pursuit it doesn't ring true anywhere else.
0: Well, thank you, Ian. This has been a pleasure and very informative and I've thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Oh, thank you, Dave. Thank you, yes.
0: As I said at the beginning of the episode, and as we briefly discussed, I do sometimes worry about pilgrimage being a self-indulgent practice, something that is... An escape for me from the difficult realities and something that I'm lucky to be able to escape. That's why this work that Ian is doing is so exciting to me because what it speaks to is that we can, we can think about pilgrimage on two different levels. There is on one hand the focus on the self and that's valid. We can go too far when we are focused on the self. It's something that I've taken from Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections, where he talks about briefly the, the self-help industry and all of this focus on attending to our own individual needs and how actually that can do more harm than good. That obsessive focus on the, the ego can actually distract us from the things that are more nurturing and beneficial to us that what really helps us and nurtures us is our connection to each other. Overemphasis on, on the self is limiting. It's the same concept behind flow states, that when we are immersed in something that is rewarding, that's all-consuming, that brings us great satisfaction, we're actually less attuned to the self. We lose ourselves in the moment. So there's a potential trap when we're focused on the self. But I don't want to create a false dichotomy there because certainly one of the challenges that many of us face in our day-to-day lives is we don't have the opportunity to be reflective, to be introspective, that we are so consumed by so many different competing obligations that we don't have that chance to think about what matters to us. So again, I'll reiterate one more time. I don't want to say that it's harmful on pilgrimage to be focused on the self. That's important. It's an opportunity for us to do that. It's one of the things that brings us back is the value in that. But it comes with limitations. Or alternately, it leaves us or it leaves pilgrimage with loads of untapped potential. Because what pilgrimage also offers is this deep opportunity for connection. It's what the seminal pilgrimage scholar Victor Turner called communitas, this ability to bring us together in these spontaneous unstructured communities that are nurturing and rewarding in all kinds of different ways. And to me, that's what Ian's research highlights, is that pilgrimage also offers us this ability to think communally, to think more broadly, to move beyond our individual identities and differences and to come together again as a larger whole. And around the world, as we become more fragmented, as we become more attuned to the personalization of information online that strokes our egos and reinforces our differences, I think we have to work even harder to come together. It is the beauty of the Camino that it is a leveling effect. It is equalizing when we are all in albergue beds together, when we are all dealing with the same ailments and aches and pains, when we are all different ages and nationalities and backgrounds and faiths, and we can coexist as peers. And we see through everybody's shared exertion that we are all working hard, that we are all deserving of comfort and care and a good meal, and that we have validity as people. I think that's, that's what pilgrimage can bring us, is an opportunity to disconnect from all of these things that are pulling us apart and come back together through shared action. I'm excited about the work that, that Ian and many, many others are doing. And again, we'll look into that in even more detail next time around. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Dr. Ian McIntosh for speaking with me. He's the author, again, of numerous books and editor of collections including The Many Voices of Pilgrimage and Reconciliation, Pilgrimage in Practice, and Peace Journeys. And Those are all available on online bookstores all over the place. And you can follow his Sacred Journeys Facebook group for links to all kinds of interesting pilgrimage-related stories in the world. The Camino Podcast is available on all the big podcast distributors, Apple, Spotify, Google. You can engage with me through Camino Podcast at gmail.com or the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And I'll put production notes eventually at davewitson.com. Thanks for listening. One day at a time, everybody.